inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. And we're two siblings who happen to be blind. Outlook. Radio Western. The blind are the most unfortunate. They are condemned to a prison of clay, dark and helpless, and desolate, in the midst of a world which is full of light and glory and beauty, of which they continually hear, and after some conceptions of which their souls must pant in vain with all the sickening agony of unquenchable desire. That is a quote from the 1830 issue of American Monthly Magazine. Yeah, what a quote to start the show today. Welcome everyone to Outlook this morning on Radio Western. Happy Monday, everyone. We're back live. Yes, indeed we are. Last week we were not here in the studio, though we did play a repeat from a few months back in early March. Uh, Remembering John Ray, an advocate, tireless advocate here in Canada for the blindness community who unfortunately, unexpectedly passed away in, in early April of this year. So we wanted to air that episode again last week to, to remember him and all the amazing work that he did yeah. throughout his life. And being that, um, you know, this is uh, Disability Pride Month. Uh, yeah, thought it'd be a good one to play while we were away, taking a bit of time for ourselves, but now we're back. Yeah, and we have a really interesting episode coming up today with a really interesting guest, Care. I'm really looking forward to getting into this one today. Yeah, so Heather May is a professor uh, of theater at Hobart and William Smith College. And uh, so we're going to talk about art today, and Heather has a short film that uh, caught my attention several weeks back called Awaiting Tiresias. Yeah, so, so they are Heather H. May and prefer to be referred to as H. Is that is that correct? That is correct. At least I, I keep Heather professionally, but colloquially I prefer H. Well, we like to keep it sort of casual on this show, so I think we'll, we'll stick with H then if that's, uh, if that's awesome. cool. Awesome. And where are you coming to us today from H? Yeah, I'm uh, located in Geneva, New York, which is on the um, unceded territory of the Haudenosaunee here um, in the Finger Lakes region of New York. So it's a beautiful uh, area. Yeah, very, very pretty. Yeah, a little bit away from some of the hustle and bustle of, uh, of New York City or something like that, maybe. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Which, which, based on this this uh, short film that that we're going to be talking about today, it really does show your appreciation for nature and something that I think both of us here, care, can relate to as well. Is nature? I think is one of those one of those things that sometimes we forget about in this world where everything is just so go 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 all the time. That I think it's so important to to get out in nature and, and be around that uh, that peace and, and calmness out there. Yeah, and there's several themes in Awaiting Tiresias that that go back, return to nature that I wanted to ask you about at some point here. Uh, But we're also talking about art and inclusion and we're talking about disability and uh, identity and a bunch of things. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that you could be with us today to talk about this. Uh, I came across this documentary. I found you on Facebook in one of the groups, uh, blindness groups, I guess. 
So do you want to tell us a bit before because. we get into the documentary a bit about yourself, something maybe me might want to know to set up how we how you got here to making this documentary in the first place? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am, like you said, a professor of theater and a theater director. Uh, got into theater the way I think probably 90% of people do, which was through starting as an actor. Um, and then I found I'm, I'm much happier bringing the best work out of other people and kind of collaborating. So my background is definitely as a collaborator. Um, and then... I am also, or I was later in life, I discovered I was a very good, pretty good, pretty very good, somewhere in there, <laughs> a distance runner. And so I also have a background in running and used to run competitively. Um, and then how I kind of wound up with this particular um, film and like I like you all know, it's also got a live stream version where I can perform segments of it live. It's slightly different in that configuration. Um, but I got into that just as a way of coping with or trying to process um, diagnosis of retinitis pigmentosa. And so I come, theater is a very visual field. Um, and when I was taught directing, it was always in terms of things like you know, stage pictures, or we talk about visionary directors. And so trying to think through um, what my, like, what what's my future? What's my role? How does that shift the nature of who I am within the profession? Um, led me to start thinking about how to create different types of work. And I guess that's when I started playing around with some solo performance pieces. So this this is part of a long iterative process of a bunch of different, I don't know, musings, I guess. Yeah, so RP, when were you aware of it? Like, did you know about it years ago or did, did was it sort of surprise for you? Yeah, it was kind of a surprise. Although, you know, it's one of those things, as I suspect with many people in retrospect, I was like, mm. um, what happened was I was out for a run on a daily route that goes kind of from my house. Um, I live about a mile from Seneca Lake and it's just beautiful. Um, and I was out on a run and they're kind of, I don't know, I guess they're about up to my knees, very large stone boulders that mark the entrance to the state park. And I was distracted by the lake, like sunrise on the lake, but I ran literally straight into one and flipped over and landed on my kind of hands and knees and thought, okay, I'm just daydreaming. And then a few weeks later, I was out for another run on a, like a restored train track area. Um, that's a trail. That, that's the one that's in awaiting Tiresias. And there was a downed tree. <laughs> and again, it's a tree. It, it wasn't like a, a branch or something. Um, and I was paying attention to a, someone who was out with a dog and I was paying attention to the dog and I didn't see a tree um, and fell <laughs> right across that. So then at that point, I think I had been telling like my husband that I was a little... I think I'd been joking like, oh, I must be going blind because I kept dropping things and I couldn't find them. And so when I went into the eye doctor, it wasn't a huge surprise to me, I guess. Um, but I had no idea that, yeah, that that was an option. So there was a lot of the, you know, three, how many fingers am I holding up test where I couldn't mm -hmm. see any. So Yeah, I think those uh, those experiences are, are often how people do eventually find out that they might 
be losing some vision. And it's one of those things that, you know, you don't necessarily think that top of mind at first. So it often is just like, oh, I was daydreaming. And of course, even anyone who can see might be daydreaming and may run into something. It doesn't necessarily always happen because you're blind. Um, but it also makes me think of myself recently, actually finishing my music show here at the station when I left the one day I ran right into a pole and again I was just walking I, I generally walk pretty fast on my own and I've, I've had quite a bit of training with my blindness oh. skills but I wasn't it was such a nice day I just wasn't paying attention obviously and uh, I didn't I didn't quite fall over but I did have to go to the, the hospital to get some stitches so it wasn't uh, it wasn't how I planned on ending my day but oh just just these experiences about how we how we eventually in your case anyway how you how we come to that conclusion and we you know we don't maybe accept it right away and it takes a while to for me we talk about a lot on the show I was born blind so for me it's the way it's always been so it's not something I think about as much but definitely that acceptance and when it happens it often happens so gradually for people that at the time you do just try to count it to something else you don't blindness isn't necessarily the first thing that jumps into someone's mind that oh I'm definitely going yeah. blind yeah yeah, and brains are amazing, right? Because I don't, my brain fills in so much of the picture that I really don't realize what I don't see until until I'm running into a tree. <laughs> yeah, and that's what caught my attention when I when I saw your link to this film that you shared, and I I started watching, and <clears throat> it's like you start with just the sound of your running and your breathing as you're running, and then you know, you have a little incident and you fall and you're brushing your hands off. And, and so, you know, those things are really, they get your attention for sure, because it's just like, it can happen to anybody. And it's, it really puts you in the moment with, with you, with yourself in that film. Hmm. But, um, RP, so it wasn't like it was in your family and you knew others that had it and you were like, what did you know about blindness before? No. Like, cause it makes you think about and challenge your own biases and your own, uh, you know, th misconceptions about disability in general, but. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's made me realize how much I failed at least one student who, um, mm -hmm. I taught in a directing class. He, this is well over a decade ago. Um, and I didn't realize, I feel so stupid saying this now. I did not realize that blindness was a spectrum, right? And so someone showed up, that student showed up using a white cane and I just assumed they had no vision um, and made a lot of assumptions about how they should engage in the class. And they really didn't want to do anything differently than I was doing with the rest of the class. And at that time, I didn't really think about other ways. Again, I had been taught very visual approaches to theater. And, and now I had suggested they might want to do a radio drama and they weren't interested in that. But there are certainly other exercises that I try to use now with directors that are, you know, more hearing centered to give um, not only those, but to give multiple different approaches to the material. And I definitely just, you know, in retrospect, I'm like, wow, I really did a horrible job on that. I think it's so important that you bring up this the spectrum because I do think that's something we focus on a lot on this show because it is a it's very common for people not to not to think about that and it's understandable the fact that we just our education out there isn't uh, nearly as good as what what it needs to be for for blindness so I think that is a common misconception that many people have until they're maybe know more blind people or listen to a show like this or, or you know <laughs> speak with someone like you so and you learn you learn that from your experiences so I just think it's a it's a common thing and I think it's great that. Uh, it's people, more and more people are being educated about it. Yeah. 
And I like that you say what happened, that experience with your student is, I, I think about that all the time. I, you know, I haven't acted since I was in the eighth grade or something. And I've thought about it before. Um, well, first of all, I'm not really a fan of putting makeup on my face, but, um, but I've thought about acting again and how visual it can be. And of course, this is why I love podcasts and, and, and radio drama and radio, you know, documentary and things because it, it puts me on the same level playing field as, as anyone else who might be listening. Uh, whereas everything's so visual, but at the same point, I, I do love, you know, film and movie and, and, and plays. And, uh, you know, so I think it's great to explore that sort of thing and, and not assume that your student, like they they're there cause they wanted to study theater. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was a common thought that, you know, well, you could do a radio documentary. So I, you know, drama. So I get that. Yeah. It seems like it would be, that would be a, a, a leap that someone would make to think, oh, you could do a radio drama, which sure that can still have some elements of theater. But when somebody's you know signs up for a theater, of course, in theater they want to be. Of course, everyone wants to be included as much as possible. And sometimes I think people often think like, oh, you could find a whole alternative way to do a project, which in some cases is necessary. But I think in a lot of ways, people can be more included than than is often realized. I also like yeah, I like absolutely. this I like this quote in your movie. Uh, what you said about your movie, um, you said this performance piece wonders uh, why is darkness full of fear, and that really gets me because someone who's so Brian and I grew up together. Obviously, we're sister sister and brother, uh, but you know our level of sight has never been the same. It's a little more <laughs> similar to it, to each other's now. So I'm I've been in the process of losing sight, and like you say, it's often a gradual thing for many years. And there is a lot of fear, even in my, in, even in me. And so that sort of quote, you know, gets me and all the themes in this in this short film that you explore. Uh, what what was it for you in that way? Um. Well, you know, it's interesting because in theater, in some ways darkness is also full of potential right mm -hmm. um because it is a space of transformation a space where we can imagine different things uh you know since the 19th century there's been a overwhelming tradition of dimming going to blackout right before you start a production to warn people that they're about to enter this kind of new transformational alternate dim, dim the lights yeah, Set the mood. Um, but it's interesting to me that we both have that. And then at the same time, I think when when I talk to people, studies I've read, um, when I think about my own life experience, right? We, we just have a lot of negative associations with being in the dark, that sense of being able to be surprised, being vulnerable, uh, not knowing where you are, um, lacking, yeah, there, there's just, I think, so much fear about what can happen to you in those spaces. And I'm not entirely sure why. That's something I keep meaning to go back and research more of. Um, but certainly, I think it's it's a prevalent feeling. So, like, how, how do we shift our natural associations to one that's closer to that, that sense of potentiality, right, of, of other ways of engaging yeah and i i always talk about it because i just find it's such a simple simplistic way of talking about things light and dark uh and i just mm -hmm. think there's too many you know 
unpleasant and negative associations with dark and darkness. And I think it, it I think it does bleed into language matters and association matters. And I think it bleeds into how you know race has been a such Absolutely. a thing and right like fearing darkness. I think it I think it bleeds over into other things. But uh, I think I find the darkness somewhat peaceful, especially at night. And uh, I find as a writer and, and stuff, it gives me time to be quiet with my thoughts and the, the world's sort of more at rest. And so I'm always trying to get shift people away from, uh, you know, oh, I got to get fight this darkness because I know it's associated with things like depression and things and lights associated with, you know, everybody, of course, this time of year, everybody's excited in the northern hemisphere for mm-hmm. longer days. And I get it. But uh, I just I, I want people to think about it a little a little more if we can. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really important. I agree. Um, language does matter, and and what we associate with language in in many ways. Yeah, I mean, it's something we we definitely like do focus on a lot on the show, which is why your 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 short film here is definitely a prime great great topic for this this program today because it is something that we we think about a lot, and it's of course like you know I'm not the most like set set on language, but. I, I think when it comes down to it, it really does matter. And I think especially in these times where a lot of people are saying like, oh, everyone's too sensitive and all this, when really that's how people are feeling. And I think, of course, free speech is a great thing, but nobody ever said that free speech doesn't come with, with any consequences. And I think people have to realize that you can you can say what you want, but that doesn't mean that you're excluded from any sort of reactions or consequence. And, and I do think that sometimes we do... Uh, people do underestimate the power of words and the fact that yeah like of course people aren't necessarily meaning this you know up front when they when they use these terms but the word blind in itself is can just be so such a strong word often it's used in such negative ways that that there's no reason to think how that wouldn't tie back to people's perceptions of of blindness and disabilities and, and all of these things yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we're talking about someone, um, I, I often think of the number of vision phrases used to imply ignorance with blindness, right? And like um, blind trust or mm, there's worse. Uh, but but yeah, when you associate it like that, there's, I think, no doubt that that then is going to kind of rub off on those who are blind, right? A sense that they have ignorance. Well, I really love the, the one spot in the documentary where there's so many examples used um, when you're when you're speaking with the, the technician in the film. And there's a spot where there's like, see that coming, blindsided, short-sighted of you, stink eye, like just goes to show how much, and of course, like sight is a, is a, it's an important sense for 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 most people in the world, so of course it's gonna it's gonna fall into language. But it really is amazing how much it does tie into so many common phrases that we use day to day. When you kind of think about like what other senses aren't maybe included as much, and it's it is it is fascinating fascinating to really think about when you when you see how many different phrases out there. And what was that one with the pig? <laughs> oh yeah, even a blind pig finds a truffle now and again. Yeah. <laughs> the technician said that one. I was laughing. I was like, oh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love that because the documentary starts when you're running, obviously, as they say, and you, and it's said, it's said to be from your perspective, and then mm-hmm. but by the middle of the documentary, you 
you go into an exam room and you're having a test done to check your retinas. And so again, there you're sitting in darkness with this technician and it's just you and the technician mm. having a conversation while you're waiting for this test. And so it gets interesting, you know, the back and forth of it all. And there's some humor there and some wit and some, you know, sort of dr the kind of humor I, I really, really respond to. So nicely done there with the technician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to say, like, overall, this 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 entire short film awaiting Tiresias, it just it has such a artistic feel, and but in such a neat way. I just found it almost like, even though it touches on so much, so many subjects and so many a lot of difficult things too. I just found the overall mood was very calming and relaxing in a way, and um, also being an audio engineer, I just had to quickly comment on the on the the sound design and, and that went into it. It just Listening with headphones, the the all the little electronic sounds that came in and out, going to the the heartbeat, which really just silences things and causes you to sort of just sit back and really contemplate what's what's been going on. And I don't know, there were just so many parts of this 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 film that really had an impression on me. And I think yeah, Brian was always going on about oh, it's in you know it's in stereo, it's in my it's in the left, like the technicians to the left, and you're you know it's mm. it's really cool the way that sound can yeah, do yeah. And you and you talked about you talk about how theater can be such a visual medium in so many ways but I think this really demonstrates how well it can be translated and I mean we're not even getting into yet the, the audio description that goes along with, with this this film which we'll get into eventually here but yeah I just think that all of, all of that the production that went into it the space left within the film like it didn't feel overly cluttered right it had room to breathe and I think that's something I, I tie in with music for me too is like I love music when it's constantly going and there's all sorts of stuff going on but Often I find that the most the stuff that has the most effect is the stuff that leaves room in a mix or leaves some sort of space to really let things breathe and and, and gives it more feeling and, and dynamic. And were you an well, audio? I love that way of thinking about it. Yeah, were you an audio person then, or did you get you know a lot of assistance with that part of it? So the design work for that and most of the production I did a little so the. The waiting room area before I go into that exam room, I did I did the sound for that. But most of the sound in the film is engineered and designed by my husband, Kelly Walker, who um, I've been very fortunate to collaborate with for about 30 years now, I guess. Um, so he did a lot of that work and he designed, he wrote and composed the kind of musical underscoring for the segments that are in my head. Wow. Very nice. cool. Yeah, yeah very... it's nice when you can be a team like that in those ways. It is really nice. Um, and thinking about that space to breathe, I think maybe some of that comes from a background in theater, actually, where one of the things I think about a lot is I, I want my audience to be allowed to do some of the work rather than doing all the work for them. Because I think for me, anyway, that's part of the joy of art, right, is is getting to do the work, is getting to figure it out, is getting to imagine what I what I'm taking away from something, um, and not necessarily being told that that's what I should take away from it. Yeah, figuring out what you're trying to say or what you feel as the one making it and, and being in it, and then once it's out there, you can't control what other people get from it. And then it's interesting to hear yeah. people's feedback. I don't know how much feedback you've received so far. Uh, as you said, this is the kind of thing you can perform. Uh, you know live or you know perform it over and over again but it's also available so it's available um online too so it's a film and then you know i don't know what kind of feedback you've received so far but 
Um, the film feedback has been pretty limited. I've had more feedback, although I did do a, a public showing here in town mm, mm. quite a few months ago, and, and that was nice. It was really uh, good to get some feedback, though, right at the moment. Most of that is eluding me. It's interesting, too. I really do try to think about the what an individual medium has to offer. So when it is the live stream version, I can't, for instance, be out on the trail running. So I cut those segments and it's really just located in the exam room. And then in that case, I tend to take it from the technician's perspective. So I am visible um, and it's more about like, what's the gaze of the technician um, in terms of perspective. My preference is really when it is my perspective and we don't we don't see like for those who are able to see the film, you don't see me at any point in time. You just are taking the world from my perspective. Mm-hmm. An audio description is incorporated into it. So what did you know about that mm-hmm. before you started and how did that work for you? Yeah, that's great. Uh, I didn't, again, that's something that I, I was not at all introduced to. We aren't taught about it really in most, uh, my, I have no scientific study, but I would say the overwhelming majority of theater programs are not teaching audio description. So that was not something I was really familiar with until I started doing research on blindness and and film, probably just blindness. And then I came across some articles by Georgina Klieg on some exercises on audio description. And that led me to reading more about audio description. Um, And I'm not trained, (laughs) I'm not trained in it. I approach it from the perspective of someone who's a director. And the thing I feel like I was trying to do with it was to really um, think about what were the visual elements that were telling the story that I wanted to tell since I was also directing it. So what are the visual components and how can I frame that in such a way that it is part of the design, not some mm, bland, lacking a point of view perspective. Like, again, I don't necessarily want to do all the work for someone who's relying on audio description, just as I don't want to do all the work for someone who's relying on their site. But at the same time, imagining that as as part of the design rather than as just something that gets kind of wedged in between things. So I tried to integrate it as much as I could in how I was filming and creating the movie. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's great. You've already come to some of those conclusions. <clears throat> I'm interested in audio description so much, and I'm trying to get into it recently. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, you know... I've been studying it and I find it to be an art form. And like you say, you don't want to slap it on top. You don't want to wedge it in, you know, badly. You want to, you know, incorporate it into the work and make it a part of the whole production. And you don't want to, you know, assume that the blind people who need audio description to fill in some of those blanks need you to do all the work that, that, you know, that they're intelligent enough to, to figure things out. You just need a bit of, you know, information, you know, put in there a few, you know, here and there and different parts of the film have less, have less and different have more, right? And you're in the exam room when we're in your head, it's you talking and we're in the dark. There's no need for it so much. It's more on the trail and things when you're out running that, that we need to know what you're passing by. And we're going to have a clip here coming up 
just to show people what to expect on it. It's on Vimeo. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, is it, is it, has this been officially released yet or is it still kind of, because you sent us a Vimeo link to watch it, but I wasn't sure if this is a public, yeah. sort of d- um, been released publicly it yet or if it's still more. It, no, I'm happy to have it shared. I initially was trying to get it in film festivals and to go back to kind of how visual the field is and how resistant um, we are. I've only received most of them. D- don't take the time to tell you why you're rejected. But I did mm-hmm. receive one rejection that was like, "We think people will get bored from all the darkness." Oh. I- I'm paraphrasing a little, but right. that was the basic gist of it. And I, yeah. I mean, they might be right because we do imagine film as such a visual medium. But also, <laughs> I would like to believe we could change that a little bit. So. Um, yeah, I find that interesting. So because it wasn't, it hasn't had great luck there, I did decide to just go ahead and release it myself. So yeah, please feel free to share if you want to put that in show links or anything. That's absolutely fine with me. Well, we'd love to. We'd love to, like we say, give people a taste of it and then hopefully you know, entice them to wanting to check it out. It's not a long thing. It's a short film. But uh, the whole thing goes by rather fast because you're just so engaged in some of the things you're talking about and your perspective on on it all. So, um, but I have a few suggestions I can give you off the air of places we can get get the word out. Uh, you know, that some people awesome. might be interested. Yeah. So for anyone who has been listening today or has just tuned in, we're speaking with Heather H May, who goes by H, and we're talking today about their recent film awaiting Tiresias. You can find more about H on their website, drheathermay.com. And we're going to take a quick break now on Outlook, and we'll be right back with more of today's program. Outlook. On Radio Western. Thanks for joining. You're welcome. Thank you. The shadows on the periphery have grown. I'm going to try to stay to your left. All right. A white man wearing a backpack, helmet, t-shirt, and shorts appears on a bike to the right. But uh, maybe through the garden, I'll let you go ahead. Okay. He pulls ahead. And I just can't always tell where your back tire is. All right. I'll pull up ahead. Okay. Thanks. The man passes stacked wood under a tarp over a wooden bridge, through an eclectic garden nestled along the trail, with driftwood, short red flowers, white daisies, stone sculptures, a bright blue painting with the sun, farmland to the left, More daisies, right. A tent made of dried bamboo. The runner stops, leans down to smell a purple and pink flower. They take a photo, their shadow covering the flower, and resume running. Someone runs past. Morning. The runner catches the man. Sorry, I've always wondered if those purple flowers smell pretty. Do they? Pixels of darkness enlarge, 
blurring the screen and collapse the world to darkness. Hello, welcome back. We're talking today with Heather May H, as they like to be known, and you can find more about them and all their projects at drheathermay.com. And we're going to talk about more about this short film, Awaiting Tiresias. Yeah, we'll just we just dubbed the clip in for the uh, for the podcast edition because we couldn't get it working on air, unfortunately. But <laughs> we if, need like another we need a man behind the scenes to help us with some of this behind the scenes maneuvering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we will we'll we'll add that in. So if you're listening to the podcast version, you will have just heard a clip from Awaiting Tiresias. And yeah, we'll put it in the show notes as we were saying. We'll put it in the show notes, the link to the Vimeo, and we're gonna try and get some more people to be able to check this out because it's really beautifully artistically made. And there's a lot of themes in here that we want to sort of get into here in the, our second half here with with H. So thanks again for joining us today on Outlook. Oh, my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. So Tiresias. I'm not sure how many people are familiar with who that is. Do you want to give any background or why 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 the title? Uh sure, 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 sure. Um Tiresias, it's interesting. I'm finding it's probably not a surprise, right? But is someone that many artists with visual impairment or blindness seem to come back to. And then for me, there's an additional resonance in terms of gender. I'll, I'll circle back to that. But um mm-hmm. you know, Tiresias is often one of the f- kind of a he, uh, what, what would I say? A secondary character in terms of folks, theater people study early on. Um, one of the touchstone texts in theater is often Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, um, because both because it's a strong classical Greek play and also because Aristotle wrote a lot of um, theory about how plays should be written, and Oedipus was his favorite play. So. We tend to study Oedipus Rex, and Oedipus, probably many people, most don't know, know the basic plotline of Oedipus, so he, uh, there's a, you know, a prophecy that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother, and so they send him away, and then he tries to flee his adopted parents, the people he's been sent to, and of course winds up killing his father and marrying his mother. Sorry, spoiler alert. Freud (laughs) made all his Oedipal complex theories um, out of that, right? But Tiresias is a blind prophet at that point in mythology who comes, um, is brought before Oedipus to try and, there's a plague going on in Thebes and they're trying to figure out why. And so Tiresias um, basically is forced to reveal that Oedipus fulfilled the prophecy of um, murdering his father and marrying his mother. Of course, Oedipus doesn't take to that very well. So Tiresias has a pretty short little but very important portion of this play early on. Um, And then there are different myths about Tiresias. So uh, he appears in a number of different texts. I don't know all of them, but um, in some myths, yeah, he's known... There are different reasons that are given for why he's blind. Um, The one I like, he was watching Athena bathe nude um, and so then blinded as punishment, which is another thing we could certainly talk about. Blindness as punishment. Tropes of of blindness as punishment, right? And actually blindness being used as punishment in um, classical Greece. So yeah, so there's that story. 
which I was drawn to. And I was drawn to it because in college, I remember being told, right, that uh, the moral or the lesson of the story of Oedipus Rex was that it's more important to have insight than sight. And the proof of that is Tiresias has the knowledge and Oedipus at the end of the play when he finally, sorry, I'm about to give another spoiler alert. Um, when he uh, finally realized what has happened, he blinds himself, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this sense of, um, yeah, that maybe insight is something we have if we don't have sight. That yeah. said, I'm just always curious about that because Tiresias comes, tells the truth and no one wants to believe him. And then he gets kind of sent back on his way. And if you look at most of the times Tiresias shows up and plays, that's kind of a common theme. Uh, he's brought in for his knowledge, for his insight, but he's not really listened to. Um, so yeah, uh, that's part of it. And then I also did not realize until I was starting the development of my very, very first short one person show um, on this, which was very different in nature. But I had a whole segment on Tiresias. So he's kind of been a constant through. And I was talking about it and some philosophers were like, well, you know, because there's a whole segment around um, gender non-binaryism and my struggles with the binary of gender when I'm also thinking about identity. And so they're like, did, did you know Tiresias was also transformed into a woman who had children? And I said, no, I was not aware. That's not in any of the plays. So um, yeah, so I'm really, just really intrigued by Tiresias's kind of fluidity and liminality. Yeah, and I talk about this on Outlook a lot since uh, my friend, Dr. Uh, Leona Godan wrote this book that came out last year called Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. And there's a whole chapter in there or more than chapters about more than one about Tiresias and, and others like like that character. And it is, it's tied in with, you know, nobody takes Tiresias seriously. They listen, but then when they don't want to hear what, what, what Tiresias says, then then they, like you said, Tiresias gets shoved to the side. And also there's this whole tie-in with blind people are considered sort of impotent of, of any kind of thought. And, and it, so it becomes women and blind people have something in common. They weren't, you know, taken seriously. They weren't listened to. Uh, they were sort of brushed aside. And then it becomes, like you said, the, the gender issues come into it. And I like in your film, you say, you say why is politeness gendered always? And, you know, people call you ma'am because, you know, that's what you do to be polite. But it's like you like doctor because it takes that away. And so, yeah, that character, um, there's so much to explore in that. And, I, you know, I grew up in high school. I read uh, Oedipus Rex. But, uh, you know, I'm not, <laughs> you know, I'm not uh, an expert in, in these Greek epics and things. So reading Leona's chapters in, the, in her book about Tiresias and how that all fits into blindness and and how blindness is... is how blind people are treated. Um, I found that all fascinating. So I went, actually went back and reread some of that book to see again, what she says about Tiresias now that I've seen your film to sort of um, put those two things together. And of course, like I say, you know, these Greeks 
epics are sort of beyond a lot of people's reach. A lot of people don't think that they can um, understand it or relate, but uh, that's why we, we're just talking about some of these themes here, and hopefully somebody listening might know more or want to do some more research. Uh, but check out Leona's book and check out this film because it's a great exploration of all these issues that we want to talk about on Outlook because um, we're trying to get the world to be a little kinder and gentler and, uh, you know, to pay attention to people's lived experiences. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, the film has a great title and I don't know, you know, how you came to that exactly, but I think it's it's brilliantly um, put into the film. I sh- I think it came to awaiting Tiresias also from the sense of... Um, so I do think a lot about liminal space kind of circling back to the darkness that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier as place of transformation or a place where a lot of things are not necessarily clearly defined, though they, there is definite within darkness. It's not a space that somehow is a void, even though it's often, I think, portrayed that way. But that sense that one could be almost anything or that there's um, potentiality. And then that sense of, for me, awaiting blindness. So awaiting this uh, sense of fate, since fate is such a big part of classical Greek literature, mm-hmm. all wrapped up then in that in that title choice. Yeah, again, like for me too, I wasn't like too familiar with Tiresias. I did learn about it more through through Leona's book that Carrie had referenced, and then yeah, to see it see come up again in in, in your documentary or your I keep calling it a documentary, but I guess more of a more of a short short film um, that coming up again, it made me really realize that yeah, how impactful this this is, and 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 coming from so so long ago, but yet how how much that that fed over generations and how what an effect that did have and this this whole idea about losing sight how you you have this the word vision comes into play where it's like you know it's not mm. the vision of of the actual physical vision but more so this insight that you that someone has but then at the same point maybe not being taken seriously in a lot of ways too so it's this weird sort of bi- binary feeling in that sense where it's like one you can't have both ways but it seems like it it's that's why it gets very confusing i find in 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 the world sometimes mm. with and, this and blindness is a spectrum just like you know gender is there's this yeah. you know line that we all run along and uh, so that's a great that you explore all that and with the technician uh, I like how he's um, you know he asks you that, uh, what you do and you tell that you're that you're a director and, and, and oh, like you're a visionary right <laughs> vision and yes. you know, insight and uh, you're supposed to have all this insight now you know you're exploring your own RP and everything what that means for you and um, but yeah, again, the dialogue with the with the technician is just so great. And how Thank about you. how about Hannah? So all of a sudden, you talk about someone mm. named Hannah in this film. How, what is what? Who's Hannah, and how does that fit into the overall uh, waiting Tiresias? Yeah, absolutely. So Hannah was um, a blind slave, enslaved person um, at the end of the Civil War. I don't know much about Hannah. I was trying to do some research. I'm very interested in the kind of intersectionality of race and disability and the ways that um, disability is raced. It's often raced or the people that we often associate with it, I think, are white um, and frequently. And I am Helen Keller. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And those who are able to access 
kind of, at least I'm, I'm, I am in the U.S., so this is, uh, I don't know as much about Canada, but for us, I think it's much easier for white folks to access healthcare, to access services, um, and often uh, black Americans in particular are raced like disability is not attributed. Instead, it's, you know, we, um, if you look at, for instance, I'm wandering a little bit of field, but uh, the school to prison pipeline here in the US, right? And Mm -hmm. so you have black children who are quite often punished and started along that line through being expelled, many of whom have disabilities, right? Um, But instead that behavior gets attributed to acting up or um, other problems or they're not able to access services um, and therefore are having problems seeing and maybe that is causing behavior in the classroom, right, that then gets punished. So I was interested in thinking more, particularly as a white person who has a fair amount of platform and privilege um, as a faculty member of not wanting a piece that just kind of reproduced that sense of whiteness as disability. Um, Yeah. And so I was researching those questions and it made me think a little bit about uh, the period coming out of the out of the civil war here in the States and just wondering about, you know, what, what was happening? There were clearly disabled um, enslaved people, right? We, it was, I think uh, Harriet Tubman had, um, you know, I yeah. think she had seizures and she had been hit, struck yeah. over the head so many times and she had headaches and some vision issues. So, of course. Exactly. It was a horrific form of enforced labor and the enforcement was brutal, right? And so that would inevitably lead to um, disability. And so what happens when we have so-called freedom to those who are disabled? And what, what I found was there one there hasn't I'm sure there's a a fair amount of research I haven't found yet but um, what I did find was not extensive and I found this account for instance of Hannah um, as fairly representative as someone who was blind uh, was enslaved and basically because of her blindness was left behind to continue more or less working in perpetual slavery, right? So although freedom was officially, you know, she she should officially have been free, there, there was really nowhere for her to go and no way for her to access that freedom. So she continued more or less in the same, the same position with the same family. Yeah, I mean, I like I do like how you worded it there in, in the in the film as well, where, as well, where you said disability meant perpetual enslaved, and yep. that just that is such a powerful thing to think about. That yeah, as, me as well being, you know, I'm male and white and privileged in all these ways, even though I do am blind and I do have other discrimination that I that I deal with at, at times. You know, it's you don't always think about you know people at those times who were were blind and also going through everything and and all the things that they would have experienced and you know even when you when you learn about slavery and these things in school nobody touches on those things generally so it's it, i just think that really did make, make a nice addition to the to the 
the film just to really illustrate so many different forms of of, of discrimination and just and perception and the way people are um, experience, uh, dealt with over history and, and experiences that, that people have. Yeah, and how enslaved people were just a commodity. That it was just all about capitalism and, and getting the labor out of them. And then if you bring disability into it, it's like, you know, you can't you can't be useful to, to white, you know, slave owners. So, you know, where does that leave anybody but yeah the intersectionalities of all these things race gender disability we're trying to talk about all of that on outlook and of course yeah i'm learning more and more about you know canada does have a bit of a different history but the history of north america both countries were built on you know enslavement Mm -hmm. and uh you know subjugation of indigenous peoples and all of those things um are are just talked about and just starting to be talked about more now but not um for a long time things have been glossed over and now disability we're trying to get that message out and so i think that's great we we can all share our perspective and and talk about these things yeah another thing from the from the film i wanted to quickly mention was uh, the the line about the the dreaded the dreaded diagnosis and then you you say in the film no treatment so what's the point and i just wanted to kind of i think that's something that we we ponder on this show quite a bit cuz some guests you know are cure cure are cure totally open to you know, yeah. s- explaining what their diagnosis is and what the, what the cause of their blindness is. Whereas some people are a little more guarded with that. And obviously we respect anyone's, you know, what, whatever they're comfortable talking about, we we respect. But in my opinion, I think diagnosis is important to talk about because I think it does just give give more and more people the idea that this is a spectrum and there's so many different causes and stuff. But I just kind of wanted to know, maybe going a little bit more personally in this, in, in your own experiences, but the diagnosis, was this something that reflected in your in your in your own life? Like, was this something that you... Like how how did that whole kind of experience go for you, and how did you feel at the time about having a diagnosis, or you know caring about about that that part of it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think a lot about diagnosis, kind of like I think about identity. They're both useful and to me harmful, right? So right. having to name where I fall on any spectrum. For one thing, it's only one part of my identity. For another thing, everything is very um, kind of experientially specific. So depending on the circumstances I'm experiencing that day, I may feel my blindness more or less. Same thing with gender, right? I may feel that more or less. I may feel any number of things more or less, depending on what those circumstances are that I'm in. So, and then I do really get frustrated with the medicalization of kind of disability in terms of accessing resources or making everything a very individualized personal thing, right? So like you have to have a medical statement from your doctor in order to go um, receive these certain benefits rather than institutions. I I find it a very convenient way for institutions not to have to make meaningful change, right, to their structures or their processes. So instead it's like, oh, well, okay, you brought me documentation that you have blindness, so I will look into getting this software for you. Right, instead of it already being sort of in the system. Yeah, totally. And then I was really, one of the books that has transformed my thinking um, is Eli Clare's Brilliant Imperfection. I cannot recommend that book highly enough. Um, And it really, I think, deals beautifully with the nuance of diagnosis, of cure, um, and the great harm that kind of seeking those things often causes. Um, And I think it's complicated. Like, it's been helpful, but in, often I've said I sort of wish 
frequently I didn't have a diagnosis because I've really struggled to access accommodations through my institution. Mm. And, um, you know, if I didn't know I had a diagnosis of a disability, I would still be doing the things we all do to adjust to our circumstances, but I wouldn't be as angry, (laughs) right? Uh, I would be figuring out my own kind of solutions to things. I I guess going back to the question of when did I know I had RP, I didn't, but I realized like I count steps everywhere. I've been doing that for as long as I can remember. And I can remember at some point in time asking someone else if they did that and they were like, no. And that was pre-diagnosis, right? And so again, that's just one way of like internalized figuring out how to handle not not knowing what might be somewhere. So having to count the steps so that I don't fall down them or whatever. So that's a long rambling answer to your question, but I, I think it's really complicated. Like um, I am grateful to be finding more of the blind community. I don't know a lot of blind and visually impaired folks. And so having a diagnosis has helped me go seek that out, right? So that's a positive. Um, but it also in ways I think can be really frustrating. Yeah, I think your your answer there is, is so informative and you include so much detail in that because you make a really great point in the fact that everyone wants things to be simple, you know? I'm <laughs> Me included, like I want everything to be simple, but nothing really is. And I think this whole diagnosis, I think a lot of people, it's like, oh, that's the answer. Now we figured it out when really that's just... That's just the beginning. Yeah, that's just the beginning and that's a name, but it's like you have to do much more after that. That's not really... The diagnosis isn't really the main point. It's the... the uh, Adv- the the making things accessible in the world so that no matter what diagnosis you have you things are accessible for you so I think like you say that's kind of an easy sort of thing for some people where it's like oh we found this diagnosis now we can move on to the next thing instead of like really trying to make meaningful change over over time so I can see yeah. that and I think again it's like so many things if not going extreme with it not putting too much in the diagnosis but also not totally disregarding it either so I think it's it's like so many things in life where it's I think it balance is, is so important Absolutely. And I do think it can lead us to, um, what do I want to say? Uh, yeah, oversimplifying kind of what we would need to do to make something accessible or just focusing on small portions. And I think about it as a professor, when you think about disclosure, right? I do think people should have absolutely the right to not disclose, but we also are horrible, again, at least in the U.S., at talking about um I don't know, talking about the way our bodies are impacted by things without having to have medical proof of something. And so as a faculty member, I think a lot of people get really scared to talk to a student, let's say, who comes in saying they need accommodations and we're not, you know, correct, don't ask what the diagnosis is, but we should learn how to have a discussion about um what actually would make your life, like your experience in this classroom more productive, right? I try to have that conversation, not about diagnosis, not about what's your medical, I don't care so much necessarily what a doctor has said, right? But how can I restructure a class so that it is as accessible as possible for my students? And we just, at least here, have not really set up a system where that's what we're talking about. Instead, it, it all gets kind of wrapped up in this, like, yeah, medical diagnosis, here are the five things you get, 
very good walk out, walk out the door, we're done. Um, and it's not really helpful. Yeah, and I think that can sort of stem sometimes from people not, you know, of course we all just want to fit in and, 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 and do the things that we do, but I think sometimes people are afraid to talk about these things. So by not even talking about diagnosis, sometimes that allows people to just sort of, you know, try to fit, fit in and not really examine kind of what sort of steps they could take to have things better for them. So I think it's, it is that balance of, uh, of not talking about it all the time or not in certain ways, but yet still talking about it so that more and pe- more people are aware of these things and, and that they are. Yeah. Or as a faculty member, learning how to ask questions that aren't prying medically, but are actually evoking um, difference of like how you might approach something, teaching something differently uh, that that isn't necessarily prying into someone's actual circumstances of why they need that. Right. But what, what are the things like someone has a lived experience of their body and they probably know what will make it better or worse in the classroom. So learning how to have that conversation rather than I think what often happens is, oh, I'm afraid to bring that up. So I just won't talk about it at all. Yeah. And it's like Tiresias going back to, you know, the the name of your short film is like Mm. trust somebody when they tell you what their lived experience is. And Brian, I haven't faced this so much, but a lot of people who are on the spectrum of blindness deal with people saying they're faking it or you're using it for attention. It's not as bad as you think or how you're using an iPhone. And so it's great. I'm, you know, I don't wish anything on any one, but I'm happy that you and Leona, your professors, your your you know you know you're on college campuses, you're teaching, uh, you're interacting with students and other other faculty, and that's just going to make things better for everyone, even without even necessarily trying too hard. So the more places that people show up with all kinds of intersectionalities, the better I think. Yeah. Yeah, so we've been You're, speaking today with Dr. Oh, Heather sorry, H. May. Oh, no worries. Uh, scholar, artivist, professor, director, collaborator, dreamer, and true believer in the power of theater to transform lives. I love I love how that sounds. Yeah, um, art, artivist. I like that. Yeah, artivist, a word I don't come across very often, so I thought that's a, a nice choice of words. We have a, we have a few minutes left here, so didn't I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know what else we want to maybe cover in the last few minutes here, but so much obviously in this in this documentary awaiting. Uh, sorry, I keep calling it a documentary. I well, well, it is. It, it is in a sense, it, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, it is all based in my life, so it is in its way a documentary. Loosely, yeah, right. Loosely, obviously, like you say, you don't actually see if if people are watching and have vision that are watching it. You know, they don't necessarily see you specifically in in the in the, in the film. But. but everybody, go to her web go to their website because it's great you have other productions on there you have one that you did it's like a puppet series of puppet puppetry shows about the 2020 election uh, age that I think are so funny and uh, you're the one character is named Stressica yes (laughs) yes Um, yes thank you that was a collaboration with a brilliant puppeteer I don't do puppets but I helped write and voice and produce um, those and that's Anna Claire Walker did all the puppetry for that um there's also if people do wind up there if you're interested in audio description we I worked with some students to create a piece that was an adaptation of the Hansel and Gretel stories called Tone a Blind Eye and you can still access all of those um, there are five short monologue videos and those are all fully audio 
audio described as well with that built into the way we design that performance. Yeah, like I said, I want to introduce you to some people here in Canada who have an organization at West called Vocali, and I think they'd love mm. to check out Awaiting Tiresias or, you know, this this interpretation of the Hansel and Gretel story. Uh, you know, I kind of grew up with that story in German uh, Brothers Grimm fairy tale versions mm. with my grandparents from sort of that part of Europe. And so it was always sort of this spooky, scary story, the idea that parents would, you know, abandon their children in the woods and there's a witch out there. But the way you explore intersectionality and these monologues is so well done in different t- time periods, you know, um, modern day pandemic times, all the way back Mm -hmm. to, you know, famines from the 1300s and in the Nazi period, you know, period of history. It's fascinating stuff and it's really creatively done. And yeah, H, thank you for, um, you know, doing all that because it was thoroughly enjoyable this weekend when I got to check out all of those. And uh, I'm not much into puppets either, but I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah. So very, all very unique and so creative. Yeah. Dr. Heather May.com. Is there anything else you'd like to mention on Outlook here, um, H, before we do wrap things up? I think this has been a really interesting discussion. You know, identity and all these things, we, we don't talk about enough on this show, and, and you identify as they slash them. So I just think that these are things that we, we really do want to talk about more, and maybe we didn't get into that quite as much today, but I think this film also really does does touch on these things in a very artistic, creative way. Thank you, No, I'm just delighted to have had the chance to talk to you. And if folks do watch Awaiting Tiresias or anything else and want to reach out, I'm always, it's, it's, I'm used to theater where I have a live audience and can kind of get a read on mm-hmm. um, how people felt about things in the room by listening to their breathing or um, whatever. And I can't for this. So certainly I welcome feedback. Yeah, we didn't even get into the environmental stuff in the film, you know, your descriptions of, you know, hike in Hawaii or your run or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the red clay hills of Alabama, wherever it may be. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I love this show. I get to reach out to people all over the place doing really interesting things and anybody who's artistic and creative, all the better. Uh, so it's been it's been pleasure yeah, meeting you, H. And uh, I will pass on all your information. We'll put it in the show notes and uh, get people to check it out. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm grateful for the outreach as well because it got me to Outlook. And I don't know that I would have found you all before, but I'm learning a lot by listening to back episodes. Great. Perfect. We always appreciate the listens and uh, we'd love to have you on again someday. Great. Thank you. Send us an email. Outlook on RadioWestern at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.